Um, you're brave. So um, we're glad uh, just to uh, share with you this morning. I want to ask you a question. Do you think it's a part of some people's uh, thinking, Christian people, believing people, that in the back of their mind they have some type of little bargaining going on with God? Go something like this. If I try to be good, I go to church, I'm involved, read my Bible, practice the golden rule, live by the principles of scriptures, God in return, this is what I'm expecting, that God will give me good health, good job, a good marriage, long life until about 90, and a peaceful death in my sleep. But what if, when you're walking with God as a believer, your daughter in college announces she wants to marry her girlfriend, or your son turns absolutely vanilla toward everything pertaining to God, or your six-year-old daughter is diagnosed with a terminal illness, or the loss of a well-paying job blows apart any type of uh, promise for a, uh, the home that you want, your dream home. Or a Christian marriage is ripped apart because one partner wants someone new. And woven in the warp and woof of all of these illustrations is raw trauma. Life is messy. So it's easy under these circumstances to conclude, well, I kept my end of the bargain, but God did not. We're going to meet a, a godly man here this morning in the Older Testament uh, who struck, a, I think, a type of bargain with God that thrust him into a major crisis of faith. This man's name is Job. Let's pray. Father, whether we're standing or sitting here this morning, each one of us hold your written uh, voice. And we've just met here for a couple of purposes, and one is to just think upon your worth this morning and to recalibrate our souls to the straight line truth of your word. And if the Holy Spirit be pleased to make these words alive, we'd be grateful in Jesus' name. We usually think of the Old Testament uh, book of Genesis as the oldest book in the Bible. But that's probably not true. I think uh, Job is probably the oldest book. And the reason why I say that is because there's no mention of the law in uh, the book of uh, Job. And there's no mention of Abraham. So our objective this morning is to... Uh, sort of uh, take a F-16 flight over 42 chapters of the book of Job and make uh, some practical applications and try to be out by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Um, the major theme of the uh, book of Job is the defense of the goodness, righteousness, and uh, all-powerfulness of God in view of the fact that the righteous suffer, particularly unmerited suffering. Now, there's a couple of related themes here. One is, why do we as God's children worship God? Do we give him worship out of unconditional uh, love from purely spiritual motives? Or do we worship him only because of the goodies, the creature comforts that we enjoy, that we see associated with uh, being a part of the body of Christ? So, the second uh, related theme would be God's sovereignty. Does he, God, have the right 
to govern his creation, including us, man, uh, as he pleases, or does he have to give us an explanation of his actions? Let's uh, look here at the uh, first chapter of Job in the first verse. In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. Now, we find out in chapter 29 of Job that Job held a seat in the public square. That means that he was a city gate judge and a member of the city council, and he uh, deliberated on the uh, city's uh, various administrative matters. He knew how to prosecute, and uh, there's, that would be sort of his uh, uh, position. Uh, then also we learned that uh, he was well-respected in chapter 29, by young men and old men. All right, continuing on here. This man was blameless, upright, feared God, shunned evil, seven sons, three daughters, uh, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. And the reason, one of the reasons why he was the greatest man in all of the East is the fact that if you took your iPhone like I did and added up all of the various uh, uh, animals here, that the total amount would reach over $10 million. So he was no piker. He was, uh, he was a wealthy man. He was a millionaire, or a multimillionaire. So uh, there's just sort of a, a little bit of... He collected sheep and camels and oxen and donkeys like some people today collect, uh, amass Rolls Royce, Bentleys, Jaguars, Ferraris today. His son, uh, in verse 4, his sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes. They were a little party-like. And they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned, and curse God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So Job was a, uh, a father, priest, before the law. And uh, so anyway, in summation, here you had a family of 12, and you had possessions galore. His creature comforts were out of this world, almost. And uh, he had, uh, health-wise, it seemed to be okay, Character-wise, the, the book and God himself says he was godly, and his reputation was wise. So these were the blue, sunny sky days of Job. But there's going to take a turn here, starting in uh, the rest of this uh, book, uh, right here in verse 6. But he's going to fall, Job is going to fall into a black hole, and he had no clue what was going to come, just like we have no clue in the next 24 hours what is going to face us, whether it's good or whether it's going to be bad. And so for us, the audience, this book, God just brings back, pulls back the curtain like on this stage, only it was like this, and uh, he just gives us a little bit of insight here as to what is taking place. So in verse uh, 8, it says, 
we have a celestial conversation between the Lord and Satan. The Lord said to Satan, if you consider my servant Job, no one like him, blameless, upright, fears God, shuns evil. And uh, verse 9, Satan says, in a sense, uh, well, duh, Does uh, does Job fear God for nothing? Look at all of these creature comforts he enjoys. Why wouldn't he? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand, strike everything he has, all the goodie bag that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. You erase his livelihood and just see what takes place. Then the Lord said to Satan in his permissive will, very well then, everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now we find out in verses 13 through 19 that through lightning, raiding parties, microbursts, or tornadoes, in one hour, Job lost $10 million plus of his business. His business was gone. His 10 children were dead and many of his household servants. And amazingly, after this, he says, in verse 20, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship in this magnificent confession of faith. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now, there's a second celestial conversation. Look in uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, You consider my servant Job, no one like him, blameless, upright, a man who fears God, shuns evil. He still maintains his integrity. Though you, Satan, incited me against Job to ruin him without any cause, without any reason. Verse 4, skin for skin, bartering term. Satan replied, a man will give all that he has for his life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. You remove his health. We'll see what happens. In verse 6, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he's in your hands, but you must spare his life in in the permissive will of God here. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. Now, they were probably boils. I don't know whether anyone is... Had as a head a boil in um, not a boil or a girl, but a uh, a boil, and that is uh, extremely painful. And uh, but Job had them in his hair, on his face, back, chest, every place, all the way down to his uh, feet. And a boil is an ugly eruption, a red eruption on the skin with uh, yellow pus oozing out of each one of these sores. You wouldn't want to see them before dinner. So Job uh, uh, says, uh, and then he scraped uh, this, uh, scraped himself with uh, a piece of pottery. So this was a nasty situation. In in, uh, verse 9, his wife said to him, and so encouragingly, are you still holding on to your integrity? She did affirm his integrity. And uh, she says, well, I lost my train. 
She says, are you still holding on to your integrity, Job? Curse God and die. So her solution was, get rid of God and you get rid of your problem. And uh, just tell God, you know, take a walk. In verse 10, he replied, it's sort of like, now settle down, dear. Don't be so hasty. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? Sort of reminds you of Ecclesiastes 7.14. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider this. God has made them both. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, there's a span of time between verses 10 and verses 11. Because Job was in this morbid state. And news had to travel uh, to uh, some friends, some lands away. And so there would be weeks or months in between uh, this uh, time. And we'll just call these three friends that came, E.T., B.S., and Z.N. Verse 11, they heard all about the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And the reason why they couldn't recognize him is because it tells us in chapters 19 and uh, chapters uh, 30 that uh, not only did he have these ugly eruptions all over his uh, body with yellow oozing pus, but his, probably his hair was matted. He hadn't taken a bath. He was, uh, tells us in uh, the other chapters, some other chapters here in the book of Job, that he was skin and bones. He had lost a lot of weight. His skin was black and peeling, it tells in another place. So they heard all about him. Uh, in verse uh, 11 here, uh, these friends heard all about his trouble. They'd come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement. Um, so anyway... Uh, then in verse 13, then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So the sufferings of Job here in summation, he had $10 million in losses, financial losses, business losses, loss of his 10 children. He was in physical, constant physical pain. His wife was haranguing. And the bottom line was that he was a basket case, mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He was at the bottom of the barrel. Now, it might be uh, helpful to remind ourselves, what was their view of suffering at this time? And their view of suffering was this, both Job and his friends, that God rewarded good with uh, good behavior with good, physically, materially, spiritually, in the here and now, in real time. And God rewarded bad behavior with punishment, uh, physically, materially, spiritually. So if you saw someone suffering, you knew that he was wicked, and he was receiving just what he deserved, and vice, vice versa. So... Job held this type of view, and I believe his friends did. But it threw Job into a dilemma because he 
was thinking, now wait a minute. If I hold this view, and I've been walking with God, and all of this has come upon me, where's God? What's happening? I don't understand it. I can't get this around my head. So, all throughout the book, until chapter like 38, why his friends are saying, Job, God is just, God is right, God is almighty, but you're, there's some hidden sin in your life underneath, there's something. And if you look, you just keep looking because God isn't going to make a mistake. Well, do you remember um, in uh, John chapter 9 of the New Testament, remember when Jesus was walking along with his uh, uh, disciples and uh, they saw this man that was blind and, um, and his parents. And uh, so they had the same kind of philosophy here that, now wait a minute, let's see, uh, Jesus, did uh, this man sin or was it his parents? And Jesus said, Neither. It was done for the glory of God. And so God has purposes in his uh, doings. And we must always uh, remember that. Now, the Job's loss of respect and honor and prestige, it just galled him. It shamed him. It disgraced him. And um, there was there were severe social repercussions to these calamities. It tells us in chapters 19 and 30, the relatives avoided him. His close friends didn't come around anymore. The boys mocked him and made up songs about him, and people even spit in his face. Now look in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish. And the night, and the night it was said, a boy is born. Down in verse 26, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. Now this is a, a chapter of lament. And you can see the turn here uh, from uh, the first two chapters. And amidst alternate uh, cries of despair and faith, Job harshly accused God of unjustly and cruelly, even sadistically and maliciously, uh, abusing his sovereignty, power, and wisdom, love, mercy, and justice. And you'll find through these chapters that Job is like a voltmeter, and, or like a pendulum. He was in the basement of despair, rising to great uh, words of praise toward God, sort of like we are at times. And, uh, or like a yo-yo, up and down, up and down. Now let's uh, look at chapter 6. Then Job replied, uh, uh, 6-1, Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. Look in chapter 8, verse uh, uh, 20. What have I done to you, O watcher of men, referring to God? What, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Then in chapter 10, verse 1, I loathe my very life. 
Therefore, I will give free reign to my complaint. I'm going to let it rip and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I'll say to God, do not condemn me. And now he's starting to get demanding with God. But tell me what charges you have against me. Verse 3. Does it please you, God, to oppress me? To spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? These are thunderbolts against God. Almost as though God enjoyed sadistically and and, uh, maliciously causing Job to suffer. Verse 8. Your hand shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and just destroy me? Verse 13, but this is what you concealed in your heart, as though, God, uh, that, as though Job had omniscience, and uh, accusing God of uh, sadistically and maliciously uh, abusing him. And I know that this was in your mind all along. So now we go with chapter 13, verse 3. Now, Job is starting to see himself as a prosecutor, and God the defendant. Verse 3. But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. Chapter 16. Verse 7. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. Chapter 17. Verse 6. God has made me a byword to everyone. A man in whose face people spit. Verse 11. My days have passed. My plans are shattered. And so are the desires of my heart. Verse 15. Where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will I go down to the gates of death? Job had lost all zest for life. He despised his life. Life was a burden to him. He had no hope. Of ever finding any purpose or happiness in uh, life again. And worst of all, he considered he, he was considering that God is the source of it all. The one he worshiped. Chapter uh, 19 verse 7. I've been wronged. There's no justice. Verse 8, he's blocked my way. Verse 9, he stripped me of my honor. Verse 10, he tears me down on every side. His anger burns against me in verse 11. Now watch the pendulum swing the other way in uh, verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And then in chapter 21, Job gets into just a complete dirge about the pagan being better off than he is. Verse 7, why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes, their homes are safe, free from fear. The rod of God is not upon them. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in, in peace. In other words, People who give not one whit about God are better off than I am. Yet they say to God, leave us alone. We have no desire to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? What would we gain by praying to him? 
Verse 20, uh, chapter 23. Even today, my complaint is bitter. Uh, his hand is heavy in spite of my groaning. God has no right to treat me in this fashion. Verse 3. If only I knew where to find him. If I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him. Job taking this prosecutor uh, stance. Verse 5. I would find out what he would answer me. Fat chance of that. And consider what he would say. Would he, God, oppose me with great power? No. He would not press charges against me. There, an upright man could present his case before him, and I would be delivered forever. Why? Because I'd be acquitted. I've walked with God. As surely, uh, let's see, in uh, chapter 27, as surely as God lives, he has denied me justice. The Almighty who has made me taste bitterness of soul. I'll go to chapter 38. What happens when you put a tea, uh, when you put a kettle of water or a teapot on the stove? It's filled, and when the water heats up and the steam begins to come out, if there's a if there's a whistling agent on the end of that teapot, and that steam is forced through it, there's a whine like nothing else, and. Um, there's only two ways to solve that. Either you run out of, boil all the water out of there, or you take the little knob and turn it off. I'm not sure just exactly whether God interrupted and shut Job off, or whether or not he, uh, whether Job just ran out of steam. But in chapter 38, starting here, it says, Then the Lord answered Job, suddenly out of the storm, he said, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Why do you talk so much, Job, when you know so little? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Now, what happens here is that there's God, like, like an AK-47, whips out and fires 70 questions to Job. Over 70 questions to Job. And in verse 4, you know, all simple questions. Uh, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth, uh, earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimension? Well, surely, sarcastically, you know. You know, like I spoke the earth into existence. How many big bangs was that, Job? Uh, verse 12. Have you ever given orders to the morning and shown the dawn its place? In other words, what power do you have, Job, tomorrow morning to tell the sun to rise? Obvious answer there. And then in verses uh, 31 through uh, 33, he talks about the Pleiades, the Orion, the constellations, the bear. Do you know the laws of the heavens? Was it you, Job, puny mortal that set in place the Big Dipper and Little Dipper and the star constellations. And what is starting to happen here is that God, with these questions, is just stretching out Job's 
world like this. And Job is beginning to feel smaller and smaller, like a puny mortal. He's losing this, he's lost his steam by now. Verse uh, 40, the Lord said to Job, will the one, Job, who contends with the Almighty correct him? him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Then verse 8, would you discredit my justice, Job? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Well, Job already had. Job would cancel out God's uh, justice and call it injustice. Then in chapter 42, you know, what's really interesting here is that mysteriously Job was comfortless before and yet afterwards he was comforted, uh, or he was comfortless before this time, and now he is going to be comforted. And uh, God really answers not one single question of Job. Uh, all the burning questions Job had, um, you know, the, the mysteries that he had and so forth, uh, are not answered, and yet they are. You know, I just want to say that God really makes no bargains with us. All God does, all that God does is in perfect harmony with his eternal plans and purposes of his perfect nature, including suffering. But we can rest in faith by, uh, about this, that God is always good, Nahum 1-7, and he's always right. Job, uh, in verse uh, 1 of 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours is thwarted. Surely I, uh, verse 3, Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. I babbled on about things that were far beyond me, in other words. Things too wonderful for me to know. And then verse 5, My, eye, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in destinations. Job was lost in wonder, love, and praise. And he was encountering a power and a depth that he had never had before in his life. He had uh, sort of a, like Isaiah. Isaiah, the door of God's glory opened a little bit one time and Isaiah said, man, my lips are unclean. And the reason why my lips are unclean is because my lips speak what I'm thinking. And um, I've seen God. I've seen purity. And then uh, you remember Daniel, Ezekiel, Apostle John, the Apostle Paul. Each one of them had an experience where they just fell down prostrate on the ground. So for Job, this was not a one-time act of repentance, like, well, Lord, I'm sorry for my brash words and bad attitudes here. He'd come away from this whole experience with a profound awareness of his own weakness, his insignificance, his inadequacy, his emptiness, his nothingness apart from God. He was a broken man, a sense of personal bankruptcy. And this would never leave him for the rest of his life because it was purchased in the fire of adversity 
and would enable him to walk in true dependence and humility before the Lord the rest of his life. God was taking a believer, not because he was a, uh, I mean, obviously Job was a sinner like all the rest of us, but he was blameless. He had walked with God, trusted him, but God had put him through a crucible and he was promoting him into a greater, deeper intimacy with God. Now we notice here in uh, verses 10 and 12, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord, uh, verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. So he had twice as many livestock repair, uh, and, uh, and the same number of uh, children. So God restores Job's wealth, health, and family. Does that always happen? Not. Some godly people lose all their wealth and never recover. Some lose their health and suffer to the point of death. Some permanently are imprisoned and tortured beyond human endurance. Some die horrible deaths, martyrdom, rather than recant. Why then did God restore all of Job's losses? Well, we don't know uh, for sure, but we're, we do know for sure that in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, that the Old Testament believers were to serve as instructive examples to the living. And possibly uh, God restored Job's wealth and health as an, ex, uh, as an instructive example to us of uh, his ultimate justice in eternity. It's obvious that uh, ultimate justice is not in this life. Multitudes of people, neighbors, friends, other people, uh, they don't give one whit about God. And uh, they uh, seem like they prosper, live long lives, die easy deaths, and they do not receive the uh, justice of their evil deeds. There has to be after death in eternity that to take place. The holiness of God demands it. Uh, Hebrews 9.27 says, For as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Um, Acts 17.31, For as it is appointed, uh, uh, Acts 17.31, if I can remember that, uh, that uh, God has appointed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. So every wrong will be righted ultimately. Now, we want to download to life here, uh, sort of like Bible to go type of thing. God is sovereign, is under no obligation to explain to anyone his providential dealings with the world in general or his children in particular. God has purposes in permitting his children to suffer, which he alone fully knows. But we always know that they're one, they're good, two, they're right. And in perfect harmony with his eternal plan and purposes as a sovereign God. And as a sovereign God, he has absolute right to do as he pleases, knows what is right, and he is, uh, and what he is doing, and why. So... 
Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God is God, and we are not. Romans eleven thirty three says that, uh, uh, if I can pick this up again, uh, that, uh, oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? First rhetorical question. Answer is no one. Or who can give him counsel? Second rhetorical question. Answer no one. God is God and we are not. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, saith the Lord. Neither are my ways your ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. God is God, and we are not. You know, um, when you take a magnifying glass and you hold it up to a book on the pa- uh, on on the pages uh, of a of a book, in the center it's perfectly clear. Around the edges, it's fuzzy. But you have the assurance that when you put that, when you move that magnifying glass, that what is fuzzy on the edges will become perfectly clear. And God has given us this book of Revelation. What's in it? Basically salvation and everything that pertains to life and godliness. All of God's mind is not here. That would be like trying to pour the ocean into a teacup or a thimble. So The second point is, ultimate justice is yet future. We've already gone over that in the verses. Number three, when your soul is blue and down in the dumps, rehearse all you know about God's character. Which prompts the question is, how much do we know about God's character? How many verses have we memorized about God's character? So that when we're in the hospital, when we're fading into the later years of life and things are are very black and dim after all of our blue sunny sky days that we had to prepare for for this event where's our minds can we pull up verses that that uh have we memorized verses on that god is sovereign that he's righteous that he's just he's love he's eternal life he's good he's merciful he's all-powerful he can be in every place and he sees everything He's truth, and he doesn't change. Those are the bedrock type of things that hold a person in a storm because his promises are tied to that bedrock. And if you don't know those, if you don't know the God of the Bible well, if you haven't put some of those things inside you, then during the rough times, you just sort of like, yeah, I kept my part, but I don't think God kept his part. And um, Psalm 42, 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Point four, God expects us to bear good fruit from our life hurts and aggravating circumstances. Won't go through all these verses, but in Romans 5, 3, 
it talks about trouble, suffering, patience, affliction. And that is supposed to, to build into us an enduring fortitude. And that enduring fortitude is supposed to build a maturity of character. And that maturity of character is supposed to give us hope. Now, it's not a, by guess and by golly, hope. It is a habit of joyful hope. Why? Because it's a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he says he'll do and our willingness to let God do it in his way and his time. So, you know, sometimes crisis reveals what we really are. And I've had, over my 76 years, a lot of opportunities. Some I've done okay with, sometimes I haven't. Sometimes we just have one opportunity to show what God is like. And what? We end up showing them what we're like. When God wants to do a deep work in us, providentially, he uses adverse circumstances. When God wants to do a deeper work in us, he uses people who bless us, who disappoint us, who encourage us, who let us down, who rebuke us for wrong, unbiblical thinking, who don't live up to our expectations. I've been on both ends of that spectrum. Point five, God is not as much interested in what I go through as what I become in the process. Holiness, not happiness, is God's ultimate joy, uh, goal. And uh, really don't have time to uh, really go through uh, that, but, uh, you know, just, uh, let's just use our sanctified imagination here. Just suppose that uh, God and Satan were talking here on the balustrade of heaven, and um, we're having a discussion, looking down here on earth, and uh, God says to Satan, pointing toward earth, uh, look at uh, Lowell and Marine down there. Uh, they've walked with me uh, for all these years. They've been married for 70 years. Uh, Marine has Alzheimer's now. But look how Lowell takes care of Marine and how he claims the promises of God and how tenderly he is with him. And the nurses notice and everyone, he's just... He, and, and he's joyful in spite of going through those terrible waters because he's laid in his heart promises uh, from my word. And he's a physical, visible, audible image of my own invisible self. And then look at Arthur. He wants, he wants to go to uh, uh, Guatemala. But just before he went to Guatemala, his doctors told him he had three months. That didn't make any difference to uh, Arthur. He said, I want to finish strong. I want to live to the praise of God. And uh, he went. Then what about that teenager, Jennifer, that was scarred and crippled in a car accident? She goes around through auditoriums and other places and gives uh, praise to God. And Ken, well, he lost his wife 
recently, uh, after they had had many years of marriage together, and he's very uh, lonely. Um, and uh, he got through that because someone else in the church had taken him out for breakfast and talked him through and sort of given him healing, and God's comfort had comforted him, and now he uses that uh, with other uh, men in the church where, they, where he can go and, and uh, help them solve their issues and, and uh, heal their wounds. Things like that, that uh, uh, Satan and God talking here would uh, probably be brought up. In 1 Samuel 14, it says that, um, well, you remember that in this uh, particular passage that Jonathan, David's friend, was leading a group of individuals around a mountain in a military uh, infantry uh, fashion, and they were just bone-tired, worn out, and they come, came through this grove of trees, and they noticed that there were bees, and there was a honeycomb there, and honey oozing out. And so Jonathan tooks, takes his uh, staff, or rod, and dips it in the honey. God and adversity are good company. God's rod, like Jonathan's, is dipped in honey. And he that rides to be crowned will not think much of a rainy day. This is um, cross-stitch. I don't know how many uh, of you do that. But uh, anyway, on this uh, upper side here, it's perfectly clear. It's a verse, uh, Isaiah 55, 12. And Clara Seagard uh, made this and loaned this to me for an illustration. On the back side, uh, you can't make heads or tails of the uh, writing here, the verse. It looks like outer Slovakian. So there's a poem that says, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors. He weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride. Forget he sees the upper, and I, the untangled mess side. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. You know, God writes in characters too grand for our short sights to understand. We catch with broken strokes and we try to fathom all the mysteries of withered hopes, of death, of life, the endless war, the useless strife. But there with larger, clearer sight, we shall see this. His way was right. Our times are in thy hand, O oh God, we wish them there. Our life, our friends, our souls, we leave entirely to their care. Our times are in thy hands, why should we doubt or fear? Our Father's loving hand will never cause his child a needless tear. Let's pray. Father, we see in Job not a sinner who loved to sin, but a lover of God who struggled to exercise faith when he saw